It is good. It is good to see you. Uh, we last week we um, we started this uh, new series, just a two week series. So we started it last week. We're actually finishing it up tonight. We started the series called Branches, and the entire series it, it really kind of comes out of Jesus's words in John chapter fifteen, verse five in particular. And many of you have heard this before, but this is what Jesus says uh, in John fifteen five. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we actually got into this passage last Sunday by talking a little bit about uh, the idea of remaining in Jesus. And we specified it by talking about discipleship. That Jesus here is actually talking to a lot of people, but specifically to some young men who have given their lives to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. So we explored all sorts of ideas last Sunday. If you missed it, you could listen to or watch the podcast, but we got into kind of the nitty-gritty of a first-century Jewish world, what it meant to be a disciple. And just to summarize, because this will launch us into tonight's conclusion, we essentially said that the call to discipleship in Jesus's world was not a call to experiment or explore from time to time with some class or some sort of regimented program, the call to discipleship was actually a call to follow your rabbi or your teacher for a lifetime. Right? This is why the New Testament tells us that when Jesus calls his first disciples, it tells us that they leave everything and follow him. They leave their livelihoods. They leave their families. They leave everything that they have known. They leave their life and they give their life to following Jesus. This is the call of discipleship. And tonight, as we kind of wrap up this short little series that is really designed to launch us into the summer, we're going to explore a key component of what it means to follow, of what it means to remain in Jesus. And the key component is is the idea of obedience. Now, obedience has gotten a bad rap in recent years. When we think about obedience, we think about our parents scolding us because we didn't do our chores, and they were like ruining our lives because lost my phone privileges or whatever, right? For some of you, it's like, you know, they took away texting on my phone. I didn't have that when I was your age. That didn't exist, I don't think, right? So uh, some of you, for me, sometimes I think of like Mr. O'Connell, my fifth grade teacher, uh, Mr. O'Connell, who was like the meanest teacher of all time, right? If I like whisper to a friend in class, it was over, straight to the principal's office. I mean, it was like, listen and obey, otherwise, like, here are the ramifications, here are the consequences, right? That's, that's the rap that obedience has gotten. However, particularly in the New Testament, Paul especially, and Jesus as well, writes about obedience, but he presents it in a very paradoxical way. So let me give you an example of this paradox of obedience. It's Romans 6, verses 16 to 18, 
And I'm just going to explain the paradox for you up front so that you see it in the text. What Paul writes over and over again is not that obedience is a surrendering of your will and freedom, but rather, Paul writes, not just here in Romans 6, but all throughout his letters, Paul writes over and over that obedience is actually the way to be free. That obedience is that thing which leads to freedom rather than taking away our freedom. Here's what I mean. Romans 6, verses 16 to 18, Paul writes, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that is now, and I love this, claimed your allegiance. You have been, here's the paradox, set free from sin and have become slaves to something beautiful righteousness this is the paradox paul presents for us that that obedience to god actually sets us free here's what he means in the original language the word obey there in that passage is the greek word hupokuo it actually comes from two words the greek word hupo which actually means underneath right? Beneath something physical, like it's like an actual physical point of reference to be under something. And okuo, which actually means to hear. But it doesn't simply mean like to hear a sound. Okuo actually means to hear in such a way that you comprehend or understand something. So what the word obey, hupakuo, in the original language actually means, what Paul is meaning to tell us is that obedience is living your life underneath the, the hearing, the understanding, the comprehension of God himself. What Paul is pointing us to is the reality that whether we recognize we are living in slavery or not, every single one of us is enslaved to something. And Paul is trying to make the point that there is no more reason to be enslaved to anything but Jesus himself. That if we are to live in bondage or in slavery to something or someone, anytime we choose anything other than Jesus and the way of Jesus, we are living in sin. That's the word he uses. And the word obedience, which he says sets us free from living under sin, in bondage and slavery to sin, it, he explains it this way by essentially saying obedience to Jesus and the way of Jesus is to live under a new comprehension, a new understanding, a new way of seeing the world and life and God himself. Have you guys ever been to like, a museum and uh, paid for the audio tour. Have you guys ever done that? Anybody ever done that? Go to a museum and you pay like extra 15 bucks and they give you a little thing and you put on some headphones and then every painting has like a little number 276 and then you type in 276 and a lady with a warm British voice tells you about the painting. <laughs> this piece from Van Gogh is blah, 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 right? 
You ever done that? So I, I'm cheap and I'm poor. Right? It's a bad combination, cheap and poor, or a great combination. I don't know. Uh, so I'm cheap and poor, so I never pay for those things. And I don't know anything about art, but I love it. I love art, right? I love looking at it, but I don't know anything about it. My wife and I are in New York a few weeks ago at the Guggenheim, and we walk in, and the lady that we're purchasing our tickets from tells me, like, the best thing ever, my favorite things to hear from someone. Oh, would you like the audio tour? Well, I don't know. Like, she could tell I'm hesitant. She says, it is, and I'm thinking, like, please say it free. And they're like, angels roar. I'm like, yeah, I'll take like 70 of those or whatever, right? <laughs> so she gives me the free headset and I pop it in and I punch it and I go to this painting, right? It's this Picasso piece and it's, uh, some of you guys have seen it, but the Guggenheim, it has one of Picasso's pieces. I think it's called the woman with yellow hair or the girl with yellow hair, something like that. And it's like this really abstract, weird, it's very Picasso. It doesn't really make sense. I'm like, what is that? It's so strange, but it's like interesting. And it says four seven six. So I type in the four seven six and then this warm British lady with her warm voice is like Picasso painted this piece in eighteen or what nineteen whatever. Right? And she's explaining the painting to me. And she's talking about how most people think that this woman was uh, Picasso's mistress and uh, how the lighting comes in a certain way and how they think that Picasso painted the painting with one continuous brush uh, brush stroke and like all this like stuff, all this information and I'm looking at the painting that I have been looking at for a while, but the information brings it to life in a brand new way, right? It beget, the painting that was just kind of a flat static painting becomes a story. It starts coming alive in ways that I had not seen it before. Have you ever been to like a wine tasting? I don't know anything about wine. I'm just telling you guys tonight how uncultured I am. <laughs> I, Jenny and I went to one of our favorite wine tastings we've ever done. We were up in Napa, and we went to, uh, again, free, right? You see a theme running through my life. Went to a free wine tasting at a place called Hendry Wines in Napa. And the owner of the vineyard, Jim Hendry, came out, and he's sitting down with like a table full of us. There's maybe like eight of us. And he pours out all these wines, and he starts pouring them. And he's like, you know, so I'm just doing what I'm seeing everyone else doing, like just kind of like you know, switching it around. And then I'm just trying to say what everyone else is saying. Like, look at the legs. I'm like, yeah, those are, those are great legs. Those are great, great legs. <laughs> so those are fantastic legs. They're like long and stuff. But, right? I'm like trying to make stuff up. I'm swishing it around and then he, he has his drink and tastes these wines and in my mind I'm just thinking like it tastes like wine. You know? And, and then he starts talking. Jim Hendry starts talking and he starts talking about crazy stuff like this wine you're drinking, the grapes were actually grown and during this season on the backside of the hill country so it didn't get as much of the sun. It would get the sun between like two in the afternoon and four. You could really taste it. I'm like, Jim, what are you talking about right now? And then he would say things like it goes fantastic with salmon and this and that and you can taste a little bit of the, like the cherry, like do you get the notes of cherry and whatever else and on occasion, like 99% of the time, I have no idea what the like wine people are talking about. But on occasion, I'd be like, yes, I taste it. I taste the cherry note. I'm not even making that up. I'm not even trying to fit in. I actually taste the cherry note. Yes. <laughs> and then this wine becomes like a new thing. And I become interested and intrigued. I'm like, I did not know that wine could be this way. That is amazing. Right? It gets me like interested. I want to taste the way he tastes. 
right? Like, like you know what I mean? Like when he drinks the wine, he's like, he's like, yeah. There's a, like, uh, it was in a cedar wood barrel and this and that. And then there's like, what I, I mean, all this crazy stuff. Like, I want to know that. Like, I want, I want my palate, right? I want my palate to be like amazing like that. And I, I'm not, I'm not there. But the stuff comes alive when you just say, okay, I'm going to sit back and listen. I'm just going to sit back and listen. Because the reality is, I know nothing about art. And I know nothing about wine. But there are those who do. When I allow them to speak into my experience, the experience comes alive. And what Paul is saying in Romans 6 about no longer living enslaved to sin and rather living in obedience, hupakuo, coming under the awareness and the comprehension of God as he leads you. This is the way by which you become free to experience richly and deeply the life He has given you here and now. And the life He offers you for eternity. That when we come under His influence, under this new paradigm of seeing the world according to the way of Jesus, the way of eternity, that obedience, hupakuo, becoming one who comes under the comprehension and understanding of God, the way of Jesus, the way of eternity. This is the way that leads us to freedom. C.S. Lewis says, Freedom is the gift whereby you most resemble your Maker and are yourselves part of eternal reality. Because the reality is that we are born of eternity and God has set eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3. Obedience, hupakuo, coming under the way of Jesus, the way of His comprehension and seeing the world. That obedience to the way of Jesus is the means by which we can experience the freedom and fullness of life that he offers. John 10, 10, right? He offers us this full life. And so why is it that we have such difficulty with obedience? Why is it that when push comes to shove and life becomes difficult and those choices are at the door and we've got to answer, we have to make a decision to live the way of Jesus or to live our own way? Why is it so difficult? Here's the deal. The reality is for me, I think about obedience to Jesus most often when I am faced with a difficult choice in which I must obey Jesus. Does that make sense? I don't live my life with this kind of like constant awareness, I must obey Jesus in all things. I don't live that way. I must live under his kind of way of thinking and seeing and comprehension. I must live alive to the way he sees the world. I must live in obedience to the way of Jesus. I don't live that way. I think about obedience when I am faced with a difficult choice and I'm like, oh, I know I should obey Jesus here, but oh man, oh man, it seems so hard. I went snowboarding up at Kirkwood a number of years ago with some friends, and I am not a good snowboarder. I'm not even an average snowboarder. I am a terrible, I'm a terrible snowboarder. My friends are phenomenal snowboarders, and we're just hanging out, right? 
just cruising the bunny slopes or whatever. And uh, you see my form there? You could tell I'm a bad snowboarder. And uh, my friends are like, hey, we're going to go up and s- snowboard this whatever, right? I'm like, okay, yeah, whatever, man, let's go. And I'm just hanging out with them, you know? When you're with your friends, you're not thinking. So we get on this lift, and we're going and we're going, and we're talking, and a part of me is like, wow, this lift is like going really far, right? It just keeps going and going and going. We get to the very top, and I find out, because I hadn't asked, I find out it's a double black diamond, right? If you've, if you've never been skiing or snowboarding, it just means it's like for experts, right? You've got to be an expert to snowboard or ski this thing. And it's like super steep. It's like a half pipe where you've got to drop in. I mean, it's crazy. I'm like, I don't, what? Right? And my friends are up there, and I don't want to ruin their day and waste their time. So I'm just like, hey, you know what, guys? I'm just going to like, I'm a little tired. I'm just going to relax. Why don't you guys just go? Just go, and then I'll join you in a minute. Right? So they're like, okay, man, see you at the bottom. And they like drop in, and they go. And they're like tiny little dots off in a distance so fast. And I'm, I'm sitting here trying to muster up all my courage and like, okay, what am I going to do? I can't like hop back on the lift and go down. That's like, ins- I don't even know if that's allowed. And it's insanely embarrassing to just be the guy like, hi, right, going down. Like, I'm not going to do that. So like, I got to, what am I going to do? I'm looking at this thing. I'm like, this just looks like death. What will I do? And there's all these people coming up the lift, right? They're just looking at me like, what's that guy doing? I'm just standing there. So I just like, I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it. So I like edge my board to the edge. I'm like, dude, just do what you saw them do. It's totally fine. And I drop in and maybe three seconds in, it probably wasn't even three seconds. I'm like on the ground, my face, my stomach, my board is flying, right? It's like way over there. And people are like yelling from the lips, are you okay? You know, and I've, I can't even answer because I'm just like, ah, right? It's like that, like got the wind knocked out of you and stuff. What happened there? What happened? I don't snowboard that much. I've never done a double black diamond, right? I've never done that. I've never snowboarded anything even remotely close to that. I don't practice. My body was not in a condition to be able to handle something like that. My body didn't know my hips, my legs, my arms, my feet, my head. None of it knew what to do. None of it knew how to manage something like this. This is what we do in our following of Jesus. We don't train, we don't practice, we don't adjust our bodies and our souls. We don't do any of those things. We just kind of lazily live life. And then at one point or another, a decision comes up, a difficult choice to make, a a, a tension where we know we must follow Jesus, but there are what seem like easier options. And in that moment, we are standing at the edge And we are called to drop in and take that risk and follow Jesus. And it becomes so difficult, daunting, impossible even. Uh, There's a psychologist named M. Scott Peck who wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. And in it, he says this, There are many people I know who possess a vision of personal evolution yet seem to lack the will for it. They want and believe it is possible to skip over the discipline to find an easy shortcut to sainthood. Often they attempt to attain it by simply imitating the superficialities of saints, retiring to a desert or taking up carpentry. 
Some even believe that by such imitation, they have really become saints and prophets and are unable to acknowledge that they are still children and face the painful fact that they must start at the beginning and go through the middle. Remember when Gatorade had those advertisement, advertisements with Michael Jordan? Some of you guys are way too young to remember this. Remember the taglines? You guys know Michael Jordan, right? Those of you, who, he was like Kobe Bryant except 100 times better. And just, okay, if anyone wants to argue that, you're crazy. Uh, anyways, Michael Jordan, greatest basketball player alive. And they had this ad campaign, Gatorade. I think it was Gatorade. It said, be like Mike. And every time you would just see Michael Jordan flying through the air, dunking on people, game-winning shots. And then at the very end, he would drink a Gatorade and it would say, be like Mike. You know what that advertisement was telling us? Okay, listen, like, drink a Gatorade and that's the stuff you'll do. You'll fly through the air, you'll dunk on people, you'll hit game-winning shots, you'll be the greatest player alive. Just be like Mike, drink that Gatorade. And this is how we feel about the Christian life. We think that we can just grab our snowboard or grab our Gatorade and jump right in and be good to go. But like M. Scott Peck tells us, no, it takes work. It takes admitting that we need work. We need to shape ourselves a certain way. We need to open ourselves up so that God might shape us a certain way. Jesus tells this beautiful story, this parable in Luke 6, 46 to 49. He says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Do you notice that the foundation is built on the rock before the storm hits? You ever thought of, you ever think about that? You do not build the foundation of your home during the storm. You don't. The foundation is built before the storm, and not if, but when the storms of life come, if your foundation has been built on rock, specifically the rock of Jesus, then you are okay. You stand firm. You notice at the end of the story here, he says about the house that was not built on the foundation of rock, he says that it collapsed when the storm arrived and its destruction was complete. It does not say that its destruction began when the storm came. It is almost as if Jesus is inferring that this home was doomed for destruction long before the storms arrived. And so what we do when life is good, what we do when life is manageable, when situations are okay, when things aren't that difficult, what we do in those moments is crucially important to how we will respond when the storms come. And they will come. 
See, this is why the discipline of obedience is so important. It is because we cannot wait for the storms to arrive to then begin shaping our souls in such a way that they might uh, survive the storms. We must begin giving ourselves to Jesus completely and wholly now. John 14, 23, Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. When we live in the freedom of obedience to the way of Jesus, Jesus makes his home in us. It's not a temporary residence and it is not an occasional visit in those dark moments of life when we seemingly need him most. As we live in obedience to the way of Jesus, under this new comprehension and understanding of the world, Jesus journeys with us, alongside us at all times. I, I think that there's a reason why this has become so difficult, this, this discipline of remaining in Jesus during good times and bad. And, and one of the reasons I think why it's become dis- difficult is because we have believed the deception of this ancient first century uh, theology that was really wacky called docetism. Now, without getting into all the details of it, Docetism basically said that Jesus didn't actually have a physical body. That his physical body was like uh, an illusion. That when Jesus died on a cross, he didn't actually physically die. It was just all an illusion. Now, none of us, I don't think, would say we literally believe something like that. However, we have in one way or another, many of us, believed this deception. And we have separated in our own lives the body and the spirit. We have spiritual practices and then we have physical practices. We live a certain way with our physical lives and we live a totally different way with our spiritual lives. On occasion, we do spiritual work like quiet time on Thursday mornings for 10 minutes or going to awakening on Sunday night or signing up for that Bible study or singing those songs that I love so much. We have spiritual practices, but then with our physical lives, we try to we live something else. We just do other stuff that makes us happy or makes us satisfied or fulfilled or whatever else. But that separation is a lie. There is no separation. You are spirit and you are body. We all are. And we are spirit and body simultaneously at all times. What you do physically deeply affects your spiritual life. And what you are doing spiritually deeply affects your physical life because the two are intertwined. They are one. Dallas Willard says, spirituality in human beings is not an extra or superior mode of existence. It's not a hidden stream of separate reality, a separate life running parallel to our bodily existence. It does not consist of special inward acts, even though it has an inner aspect. It is rather a relationship of our embodied selves to God that has the natural and irrepressible effect of making us alive to the kingdom of God here and now in the material world. Physical and spiritual, one. 
The moment we begin to recognize that this is true, what we begin to realize is that every moment of your physical life, that means every moment that you are breathing, is a spiritual moment. Every moment, every decision, every word, every thought, every action, it all is spiritual. It has, a, it has an impact on the soul. Think about the Christian story. The Christian story, particularly the story of Jesus, which is the central story, can be broken up into three major components. Incarnation, Jesus, God coming to earth in the, in the flesh and bones and blood of an infant baby in a hodunk Jewish town called Bethlehem. Incarnation. Crucifixion. The man, the teacher, rabbi, Jesus, who goes to the cross in his early 30s, has nails, spikes driven into his wrists and his feet, and a crown of thorns shoved down on his head, bleeding everywhere, flesh opened up, wooden cross grating against his open back, dies of of suffocation on a cross. Crucifixion. And then resurrection. The same Jesus, three days later on Sunday morning, comes back to life. Back to life. And proves to the world that he is God himself. And he walks to the beach and he sees his friends. And do you know what he says? I'm starving. This whole like being dead for three days thing works up a massive appetite. He asks his friends for food. The resurrected Jesus, who is the picture, the embodiment of resurrection, asks for food to eat. There's another story of Thomas who says, "Uh, I don't believe that that's you because I saw you die. You're dead. There's no way that's you. And Jesus, instead of saying, no, it's me, watch, and then like floating in the air for 10 minutes, or no, it's me, watch, and like turning invisible, right? Or like doing something miraculous, some sort of like weird, ethereal, spiritual thing. I mean, all those things would have been really impressive, right? I mean, what if he was like, no, it's me, and then he like made thunder, like just crash down on that room, I mean, it would have been incredible. He would have been like, oh, you are truly God. What does Jesus do? He doesn't do any of that. He says, no, no, it's me. Come over here. It's like kind of gross, but like you put your finger in that little, like in my wound. That's what he says. Like he didn't do any miracles. He didn't do like some sort of weird, ethereal, spiritual thing. When Thomas does not believe that it is the risen Savior, Jesus shows Thomas not his spiritual powers. He shows Thomas his physicality. He says, come and touch me. Do you see the theme ebbing and flowing through the Christian story? It's not just spiritual. It is deeply, immensely, heavily physical. Jesus comes to earth and is born as a baby that cried and crapped, right? (laughs) He goes to the cross and you've read the passion story. You know how deeply physical it was. And when he returns to life, he asks for food and he tells his friends, touch my wounds. That's how you'll know it's me. 
physical embodiment. And for, for us as followers of Jesus, far too often we separate this. Well, my physical body, my physical life, that's like whatever. That's just earthly, right? My life with Jesus is just spiritual. It's all about in here. It's all about my heart, my intentions. The reality is that we are called to follow Jesus with our whole beings, body and spirit. It has been said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Your intentions to follow Jesus your spiritual following of Jesus, your internal thought life following of Jesus, your feelings following Jesus have very little to do with the sort of obedience that Paul and Jesus and the rest of the biblical writers are telling us about. The obedience they are calling us to The coming under the understanding and comprehension of Jesus as he sees the world, it's not just spiritual. It is deeply spiritual, but it is also just as much so deeply physical. It is all-encompassing. It's every ounce of your being. It is every fiber of your being committing itself at all times, in all moments, in all situations to following Jesus to giving yourself to that which he is calling you to. Uh, one of the great, um, simultaneously difficult, most dif- difficult things to do, and also one of the greatest privileges of being here on staff in this community is that when stories like Kirk and Christina happen, we are given the opportunity and the great honor to journey alongside them. A couple weeks ago, I was, this is before Christina passed, I was at their house. I was visiting Kirk and Christina, and at this point, she was weak and frail. She couldn't walk. She was in a wheelchair. She would need a walker to kind of push herself. But some of you know this. Some of you saw her up, up here on stage singing with us sometimes. Christina was a, an immensely gifted musician and singer and songwriter. And I didn't know this until recently, but she was like, she studied sound engineering in college. And so she was working on an album of six songs that she had written. And she wanted to show me these songs a couple weeks ago. So I go into her little makeshift studio at her house, and she had a friend visiting who was helping her record some of the music. And she's playing back these songs, and she's asking me, like, hey, do you have any suggestions for this chorus? I want to make it better. I want to make it really stand out. And so I gave her some, like, really crappy suggestions because I couldn't think of anything. And she ended up not using my suggestions, which... <laughs> Praise the shepherd, she didn't, because I wouldn't want that sort of weight on my shoulders, like, oh, I made her album suck. That would, that would be terrible. Um, but she's sharing this music with me, and I see out of the corner of my eye, I can see Kirk standing in the doorway, and he's tearing up. And so I talk to Christina for a little bit longer, and she gets back to work on her music. And I can tell, just, I mean, she had, her cancer was just eating away at her. And so she's straining just to push buttons. She's working at it. I mean, every ounce of energy she had. And I walk out to Kirk, and we walk into the living room and sit down, and I ask him, like, man, what's going on? What's wrong? And he says to me, and I got permission from him earlier tonight to share this with you. He says to me, man, I've been trying to tell her to slow down. 
You just got to slow down. And she said to me, this is Kirk talking about what Christina said to him, there isn't time. I got to finish this. I mean, this is the one thing that I just know God is telling me. Everything you got, everything you got right now, Christina, finish this. In a couple of weeks, we will have her memorial service. And any of you who are there, you will receive uh, Christina's CD. It's a six-song EP that we're getting mixed and mastered this week. And it is beautiful. And you just need to know if and when you hear that album, it is the story of a brave and beautiful young woman who was dying, who did not just give good intentions, but gave every ounce of everything she had to tell us a story as she, as she went to be with Jesus. And it is a tremendous story. And this is the sort of obedience that God calls you and me to. Not just good intentions, not just great ideas, but every ounce of our being. Every ounce of it. Every every bit of energy you can muster. Let me close with this quote from author Paulo Coelho who wrote in The Alchemist. He says this, life is eternal. We have stopped for a moment to encounter each other, to meet, to love, and to share. This is a precious moment. It is a little parenthesis in eternity. how you and I follow and obey the calling of Jesus in our lives will dictate what we fill in into that little parenthesis in the whole spectrum of eternity. And so what you do tonight, what you do in the morning tomorrow, it deeply matters. So will you obey in every moment Will you obey? Let me pray for you. God, would you um, give us courage and strength to live our lives in such a way that, um, that we might say yes in every moment, not just in the difficult times, but in every moment with big things and little things that we might say yes to your calling to obey, to live under this new comprehension, this new understanding of the world to live out the way of Jesus, the way of eternity, with everything in our lives, big and small. Give us the strength not just to obey with our intentions and with our souls, but to obey with our bodies, to obey in everything, and in all that we do, all that we say, and all that we think, in every action. Remind us of that calling in every moment. We love you, God. Help us to remain, to remain in you for a lifetime. In Jesus' name, amen.